Morning, everyone. Hope everyone's doing okay. Had a nice half term and all that sort of stuff. My son Isaiah is six years old, and uh, he came home from school uh, a few weeks back. And uh, I asked him the daily question, "What did you do at school today?" Usually, it's like getting blood from a stone, as most parents might know. Uh, but this time, he's quite forthcoming, and he was like, "We did some, we, uh, we studied stories at school today." Dad, and I was like, oh, okay, which story did you do? And he goes, no, 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 we didn't do that. We studied about stories. Do you know that every story you told me has three different parts? Does anyone know what the three different parts of a story? Just, I'm just seeing, is this my son's school, the genius? Yeah. Oh, boy, oh, I thought you were going to waver a little. Beginning, middle, and oh, what is it? <laughs> uh, beginning, middle, and end, you know, that's, that's good. So, yeah, very good. You've obviously, you obviously go to the genius school my son goes to. I went there before, but yeah. Um, uh, now, while this is slightly simplistic, I think it's a very good way. I was quite pleased with this. Like, good, good work. It's going to help him write in his stories and stuff like that. It's a good way to approach stories. That every story does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as we look uh, at the big story, the Bible... Um, This is certainly true of the Bible and really helps us, I think, in some ways to to get to the the bottom uh, and actually uh, see what's going on in this story. We we as a church uh, are in six or seven weeks, I think, into the series, the Big Story series, where we are looking at the whole Bible in 20 talks, I think it's it's going to be, trying to get a picture of God's big plan from the beginning of time to the end of time, you know. Uh, and so today we're in the story of Solomon, Solomon's uh, kingship over Israel. Um, but as we look at this bit that's very clearly in the middle of the story, it's helpful to know in the story of the Bible about the beginning and the end and the middle, particularly because the beginning and end of the story of the Bible are almost exactly the same. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, okay? And actually, it begins and ends with the same state, which is essentially heaven on earth. So if you go right back to the beginning, you've got the Garden of Eden, and you've got Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden. And often I think we can think of uh, existence in the Garden of Eden being a little bit like going around a really fussy person's house. It's like, don't touch that, don't sit there, don't do this. And uh, we know, because we know there's a pro- prohibition in the garden, don't eat from that tree. Okay? Well, sometimes for us we think that must have governed everything in the garden. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, actually. Although there was one prohibition, don't eat from that tree, the message of the Garden of Eden, the, the, the atmosphere there, is not one of prohibition, it's one of incredible abundance. It's a bit like God did this. He said, right, I'm going to make this world, here we go, end of Genesis 1, it was very good, he said. God says it's very good. That means it is very good. What am I going to do with it? Hmm, I'll give it all to Adam and Eve. It's the message of the Garden of Eden. Rule over all of the... Uh, animals, all of the fish, all of the birds, have anything you want from all of the rest of the garden. Here you go. It's God saying, have it all. It's a picture of incredible abundance. The beginning is a picture of incredible peace. The first marital row happened after the fall. There was no arguments before uh, the fall. It was a place of peace. It was a place of prosperity. It was heaven on earth. That's how we start. Now, I know this is incredibly bad practice, but in a story, if you do flick to the end, right, before we get any further, and you go right to the end of the story, you'll see a very similar picture. It's no longer a garden picture, it's now a city picture, but the book ends with heaven on earth as well. Well, I think many people think, 
that the Bible teaches that at the end of things, the destiny of mankind is for uh, God's people to be whisked away into the, above the clouds somewhere, looking a bit like Casper the Friendly Ghost floating around up there. Well, actually, the Bible doesn't teach that, and it never has. It's funny that we've come to that conclusion. The Bible teaches that actually at the end, heaven will come down to earth. And so in Revelation 21, John has this incredible vision of what this might look like. Highly symbolic, but still a picture, you know, some way similar to the beginning. This is what it says, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city wall were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. That's the end of the story, right there. I think I can understand the picture in the beginning of of abundance. Have all the vegetables you want. Okay, for me personally, that doesn't kind of I understand it. It doesn't fill my heart with. It's not exactly what I think of as abundance. Here we get a much more like, modern picture. Abundance in the, at the end of the story is that everything's really shiny. That seems to be the picture. And I understand that shiny stuff. That's good. That's, rich people have shiny shoes, don't they? So I can see this. Everything's shiny in this, this picture. You've got precious stones. You've got pearls. People, I think, are looking at my shoes. Yeah, they, I think they're quite shiny too, actually. So, uh, yeah, that's good. Um, you've got, uh, obviously here, just masses of gold. Gold absolutely everywhere. That seems to be the general idea. The end of the, end of the story as well, there's, there's prosperity. There's peace as well. Isaiah talks in a different place about in the new heavens and new earth how the, the, the uh, la- lamb will lie down with the wolf, the child with the cobra. It's a picture of peace and harmony across the board. It's a place of prosperity. It's a place of peace. It's heaven on earth. That's how the book starts. That's how the book finishes. I'm just, just not saying this just to kind of shake us up a bit, move around in the story. Actually, because we know where it's beginning and where it's ending, it's very helpful then to read the Bible and see the whole story in between these two bookends. Because essentially, in that sense, the middle bit becomes the question, how is God going to reinstate heaven on earth? That's how it started. We know that's how it's going to finish. But we know also that humans messed it up at the beginning. How's he going to do it? How's he going to bring back, restore paradise on earth? And actually, that links very nicely with today's part of the story, because in today's part of the story, when we look at at Solomon's kingdom in Israel, we'll see that in a way, we have in this story the clearest picture, the closest uh, that it comes in the middle of the story of the Bible to heaven on earth. You you know this story. I don't know whether you've you've recognized this, but this is how it's framed by the writer, that here we have an example. It's not exactly there, and as we're going to see next week, it doesn't stick around for very long. But it's like a shadow of heaven in the middle of the story. Okay? And so what I want to do is to loiter a little bit at this kind of high point of Israelite history, the high point of the Old Testament for God's people, and really soak it in and ask some questions. Let's even get under the surface of it, because as you'll see, there's some great stuff going on here. And the question's going to be, look, 
Can we learn anything from this excellent, fantastic, near-paradise state that Israel got into under the blessing of God that can help us, A, to experience something of heaven for ourselves today, and B, to be able to share something of heaven on earth with others as well. So that's kind of what we're up to. We're going to be looking at Solomon, as I said, but as always needs to be done, let's just get ourselves back in the flow of the story. Let's get back into the momentum to find where we're going here. So zooming just after the beginning, but kind of at the beginning of the middle. That should be the fourth part, the beginning of the middle, the end of the middle. Anyway, I don't want to confuse Isaiah or any of you. So anyway, the, the, the beginning is the Garden of Eden, but the humans very quickly mess things up. They get kicked out of the garden. Paradise is lost, as Milton uh, would put it. Um, but very quickly you see that God plans not just to wait to the end of the story to fix it. Well, no, he, he, early on he's thinking, no, I'm going to fix this situation. And what he does, the first major sign we get of this, is he picks out this, this uh, moon-worshipping nobody called Abraham. And he makes these crazy promises to him. So he says, promise, three sections. He says, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation, number one. Two, I'm going to give you the land, the promised land. That's for your descendants too, as well. And three, blessing. I'll bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing. And from that point, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the descendants of Abraham sort of stumble forwards. They kind of lurch from side to side in this strange kind of spluttering fits and starts progress. So one moment they're slaves in Egypt, the next minute they're free, kind of back and forth. The next one minute they're worshipping God, saying, yeah, we'll follow you with everything. The next minute they're wandering around the desert for 40 years because of unbelief and disobedience. One minute, they're, just, they're knocking off uh, all, of, all comers, like the conglomerates of these most powerful rulers in the whole land come to fight them. Psh, with the power of God, they knock them out. The next minute, some little tribe from next door come and just completely demolish them. It's back and forth. It's, it, it's one step, two steps forward, one step back. But while it is spluttering, what we've got to notice here, over the last few weeks we've seen this, there is progress here. From Abraham, there has been progress towards the fulfillment of the promise, even despite all of the blunders along the way. And last week, um, we we saw how this really got into gear in the reign of King David. Now, when David came to the throne, Israel was doing okay, but it was was kind of competing, scrapping with all its neighbors, the Philistines, and isn't it? Also, too much on a par uh, around the place. But David uh, really changed things around. And by the time David hands on the kingdom to Solomon, Solomon's David's son, uh, well, Israel is now the most powerful political entity in the region. Israel is a force to be reckoned with uh, and wider than just the, the, the immediate surroundings as well. David, uh, as we saw last week, had great turbulence in his personal life. And also the nation had great turbulence in his time. There was fighting wars here. There was civil war uh, that he had to stave off here and there as well. But he fights through. And by the end, he gives Solomon this kingdom that's basically uh, this place of prosperity and security. He's hewn something out from his battles and his endeavor and his love for God as well. Uh, that means that his son reaps the dividends of all that his father has fought for and all the kind of spluttering progress that's gone before it. And uh, this is how it's presented, Solomon's kingdom, in the book of 1 Kings. We see in two places uh, Solomon's kingdom talked about in the, in the Old Testament. One is 1 Kings 1 to 10, another bit we'll come to in a short while. But in 1 Kings 4, 
the writer wants you to know, look, we've made it somewhere here. We're at a high point in history. In fact, the writer puts it in terms of the promises to Abraham now have pretty much been fulfilled. That's how the writer presents it. So when Kings 4.20 says this, says the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This is the summary of life under Solomon. It's a nice image, isn't it? Numerous as the sand on the seashore. Well, where does that come from? Actually, that comes directly from the promise to Abraham. God said to Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sea, sand on the seashore. The writer's point's clear. Wait, guys, part one of the promise. Tick, we've done it. We've completed it. What about part two? What about that bit? The land, that was part two of the promise. Again, Israel began to take the land under Joshua, but through a combination of Israel unbelief, Israel unbelief and uh, strong Canaanite defense, they didn't really do the job properly. And by the end of the book of Judges, they're still not in. But by this point, things have changed, mainly through the work of David, but they're there. 1 Kings 4.21, this is what it says. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. This isn't just... A geographical note here either. The, the area of land that's specified here is the exact specific area that was promised to Abraham. God has said, I'll give you all the land from the river Euphrates to the border of Egypt. The, the author of Kings is making this point. At Solomon's time, part one of the promise is complete. Part two of the promise is complete. Tick. So what part three? What about the blessing that God promised Abraham's descendants? Well, actually, when we look at this kingdom you can see that the blessing was incredible that God uh, blessed Israel at this time with. In fact, so incredible that the picture that's used is of very close to uh, a heaven-on-earth sort of state here. We saw at the beginning and end, we have this kind of peace and prosperity thing. Well, both those themes are, are picked up here. The peace of Solomon's kingdom was a literal peace. There were no wars during Solomon's life. He was a man of peace in that way. And uh, there were a few minor internal problems that rumbled on in his reign, it's got to be said. However, in the context of pretty much every other generation of Israel, they pale into insignificance. Basically, Solomon's reign was a time of no wars out there and hardly any internal strife in the actual people of Israel. 1 Kings 4.25, during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, Sorry, to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. So there's peace, but there's amazing prosperity too. Check this out for a description of life under Solomon. It's an incredible passage. 1 Kings 10, uh, 21 to 23. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. Like in my house, the king had a fleet. That's in a different translation. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons, which is a lovely touch. I like that. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. I mean, if you blink here, suddenly you're in Revelation 21. You're in the new heavens and new earth, and surely that's that's the point of what's going on here. I think for many Christians, they see kind of this heaven as, as something that was lost at the beginning and something that you'll get at the end. And in the middle, 
We should expect nothing of it. We survive, we cling on by our fingertips, and that's it. One thing that Solomon's story teaches us, we see this more later in the Bible, but we've got to take note of it here, is that we can experience tasters of heaven on earth in the middle of the story. Because we live in the middle of the story. This is for us as well. Joy, abundance, peace. Those things are not just to be waited for for the day that we die. We see it here, the tasters of heaven come in this incredible kingdom. The writer wants to make people know that it's a taster of heaven, it's a shadow of heaven. We see much more of it with Jesus uh, later in the story, but we've got to know this. If, you're, if you feel like you're clinging on for dear life at the moment, it's the, oh, it'll be okay at heaven. Well, it's okay when I meet Jesus. In a sense, that's true. However, we should expect something. There is an expectation that this can be our experience now. We can experience something of heaven on earth now as God's people. However, it's one other thing we need to note about uh, the fulfillment of the promise of blessing to Abraham here is that it's not just that you can, God's people experience tasters of heaven on earth in the middle of the story. Also, heaven on earth is to be shared with others in the middle of the story. We see this in, an, in the last part of the promise. God had promised Abraham, I'll bless you and you will be a blessing. That was the promise. And even more, he said, through you, Abraham, every nation on earth will be blessed. Have you just considered the story up to, to this point and just think about uh, Israel's neighbours? Just think about how many of them at this point would be saying, ah, oh, thank God for Israel. They've been such, such nice neighbours to us, haven't they? I mean, the Egyptians, for example, I'm not convinced they're going to have... Thank God for the blessing of Israel. Israel left Egypt completely turned upside down. People of Jericho, I mean, they're not there anymore, so that's probably not going to help them. But if they were, they're not going to be thanking uh, God for Israel. The Philistines are not going to be thanking God for Israel. Up to this point, actually, Israel have been an agent of God's judgment to the wicked nations around. But in Solomon's day, we even see this happening to the nations, blessing to the nations. Uh, 1 Kings 4.34, men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. They're streaming into Israel to see what's going on here. When he builds the temple, which we'll come to in a few minutes, Solomon doesn't just use Israelites, he works closely with his friends from the other nations, from the nation of Tyre. He goes, hey, come over, come bring your craftsmen, come and help. That's unusual. We haven't seen that up to now. He's got friends in other countries around. They're coming in. They're helping. They're they're seeing something of the blessing of God spreading out. The best example is in 1 Kings 10, where a lady called the Queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. I don't know if uh, it's just me. Because of those cat food adverts, I can't help thinking of this woman as anything but a cat. I'm sure she wasn't a cat. She was a powerful queen. But anyway, I don't know if they do them anymore. But the queen, she she was a powerful queen from a nearby place. And uh, she heard about Israel and heard about Solomon thought, I've got to check this place out. Is it as good as what people say? And so she comes in, asks Solomon some questions and stuff like that. And uh, she's blown away by the whole thing. She says, this is better than what I was even told. What's the key part of her response? So it's this, 1 Kings 10 verse 9, she says this, just exclaims, looks around, sees Solomon, sees the gold, the baboons, all the stuff. What's her response? Praise be to the Lord your God, she says. Comes in, sees what's going on, sees the heaven on earth among God's people, praises God. It's as if, as I said, the promises are so nearly fulfilled. There's heaven on earth almost in Israel. It's beginning to spread out to the other nations. And of course, it's not the real thing. And next week, we're going to see the, the tragic story of it all, how it all goes wrong. 
We've got to notice this. In the middle of the story, heaven on earth can be experienced by God's people and heaven on earth is to be shared by God's people to others. That's what happens in Solomon's time. Jesus came with the message of the kingdom. That's how Jesus put it. And he he made clear that the church was to be uh, the the agent of bringing his kingdom. The kingdom of God is the direct rulership of God, which is a good thing. We see in the Garden of Eden, direct rulership of God, no rebellion in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus said, no, it's here, and you, my church, you're going to bring this to people. What he's saying is, you're bringing tasters, droplets of heaven on earth to others. That's our mission, that's our job as Christians. And so, when we see this happening in the Old Testament, this kind of clear picture of this shadow of heaven on earth, I think we should linger here just a little bit longer and ask, well... If it's true that we can experience heaven on earth, a taster of that in the middle of the story where we are, and if we are meant to be sharing it, can we learn anything more from this story of how we can go about doing that? And you'll be glad to hear that the answer is yes. If I'd said no, sorry, it would have set us up pretty, pretty badly. If we look beyond the gold and the baboons and the peace and all that sort of stuff, there's something else about this kingdom that uh, Solomon builds, that actually links it even more tightly to the beginning and the end, to Eden and the new heavens and new earth. And that's that this kingdom is built around the same thing that heaven on earth is always and will always be built around. And it's the living, tangible presence of God. That's what we see in the kingdom of Solomon. I'll show you, tell you what I mean. Um, as I said, Solomon, the story of Solomon's reign is found in 1 Kings 1-11, to and also, though we've looked at that mainly, in 2 Chronicles 1 to 9, kind of complementary accounts with slightly different emphases. Now, interestingly, the writer of, of the Chronicles account, he really portrays it as if that Solomon only really does one thing. It's like, Kings has him doing all sorts of things. In Chronicles, he, he says he really only does one thing. And there's a bit at the end that goes, Solomon's other activities, couple of bits, then let's move on. And the one thing the writer of the Chronicles is, is really concerned about, thinks this is his big thing, is he oversaw the building of the temple. For the guy in, who wrote Chronicles, that's the thing. That's the, the, the thing we remembered for, more important than anything else about Solomon, he oversaw the building of the temple. There's hardly anything else in there. Now, way back in 2 Samuel 7, David had conceived this idea to build God a temple. Now we're in the land, let's have a permanent home for him. And it wasn't a sort of sign of to make Israel look great, let's have a big grand building, you know, set the architecture for our capital. That wasn't his concern. His concern was to make room for the presence of God at the heart of God's people. That's what David wanted to do. But actually, while God thought this was a great idea, praised David for it, thought, fantastic. Actually said to David, you're not the man for the job though, David. You're not the man. You've got blood on your hands. You've, you've fought too many battles. I want a man of peace to build my temple. Your son Solomon will build it. And that's exactly what happened. And actually, it's this, as much or even maybe more than the abundance and peace in Solomon's kingdom that reflects the experience of Eden and of the new heavens and new earth. Think again, back to the beginning. God was in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 8. It's a beautiful little, little sentence. Then the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Is there any more kind of natural picture of it? In, in Eden, how it's meant to be. It was just a natural, easygoing relationship with God. Hi, God. 
I had them. It's just there with them. I don't mean to make it that trite, but it's just natural. It's just easy. Of course, this is how it should be. It's so, so kind of uh, familiar almost with their creator. The beginning, Eden, is about God's living, tangible presence. And at the end, it's exactly the same. The passage I quoted from earlier, I pulled a few bits out of that. The heart of that passage in Revelation 21, John's vision of the end times, says this. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Heaven on earth is always characterized by the living, tangible presence of God. Once again, for many Christians, and it could be maybe for some, some of you guys here, we see at the beginning, we don't have a problem with that at the beginning, and we say, yeah, at the end, of course, we'll meet Jesus, etc., etc. But in the middle, well, that's where we live. No, we shouldn't expect any of that stuff, should we? Well, actually, one of the things we learn from Solomon's story is, no, no, that's not the case at all. David conceived of the temple because he realized that the presence of God was for the middle of the story, not just for the beginning and the end. He saw what has been happening all along in the story so far. This has been under the surface all the time. It's that God still wants to encounter people. Presence of God is for people today to be not as a metaphor, but as a real thing. So when he calls Abraham, he doesn't just shout down from the clouds, Oi, Abraham. Oh, that's not going to help the recording, is it? Oi, Abraham. I'll try not to cover up the microphone again, sorry. Um, and say, do this. No, what does he do? He comes down in, the, in three people, nice Trinity reference in the Old Testament there, and he meets, he meets Abraham. And Abraham realizes, I've met with God. And he comes to Jacob. Jacob actually wrestles with God. He puts his hands on God. Moses isn't just given instructions of what to do. God appears to him in the burning bush. And as the people leave Egypt, the phrase God is with us is not just a mantra of like he's on our team. No, if you say God is with us, where is he? Well, he's just there in that massive cloud. See the pillar of smoke, pillar of fire. God's living with them. He leads them out, hidden in this pillar of cloud. So a few weeks back, uh, God instructs Moses in the law in great detail how to build this sort of portable carrier for God's presence, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, where he could be encountered. And God's presence, it's not just a metaphor. I've got to keep saying this here. It involved the actual ex- uh, expectation of encounter with God. And we see it very clearly in the story of Solomon. What happens is he builds this massive temple, gets craftsmen from here and there, they make all the stuff, and he gathers all the people together for the grand opening. Like he's probably got some scissors and a ribbon or something, I don't know. Uh, and he prays this prayer, and uh, I'm afraid people would forget about the scissors and the ribbon because this is what happens next. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 3. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. The temple was not about God's presence as a symbol It was about God's presence as a real, tangible thing. When the people left that day, imagine like 
Someone went along, his family's all back home again. Oh, how was it at the temple today? Uh, well, you know, it's okay. Well, did you meet with God? Hmm, not, not sure, I don't know. And if you ever get that, like, think, but have I met with God recently? Not sure, I don't know. No, these guys would have known. Fire literally fell from the sky. The priests could not even get in the temple. This glory fell in a way that everyone who was watching suddenly fell on their knees. There's an experience of God's presence here. And for years, priests who went into the temple then would offer their service in the sanctuary fully aware that they may well bump into God when they walk in. That was the kind of, that was the kind of expectation. That was the possibility of what could happen. See a similar thing in a famous story as we're not quite there. We're coming towards Advent and Christmas and stuff. This one often gets, gets in. I'm just not trying to jump the gun, you know. It's only half term. Um, but the story is Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. He's drawn by Lot to go into the uh, temple to burn incense. And he walks into this temple. It's a kind of rebuilt version of the one that's here. And uh, what should happen? He comes face to face with this enormous angel. He comes out at the end, kind of like, did you meet with God? Not sure, don't know. No, it wasn't like that. He couldn't speak for months because of this encounter he had. God says to him, Zechariah, you will have a son, John the Baptist. He's going to herald the coming of the Messiah. This is a place of real meeting with God. Of course, the theme of God's presence as a real expected thing for God's people continues as the story goes on. In fact, it gets more pronounced. So Jesus, who, let's remember, is God's presence in physical form, he tells his disciples, gathers them all together and says, guys, I'm leaving, but he puts it like this, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. What does that mean? Well, he dies, rises again, goes back to heaven. On the day of Pentecost, it becomes clear, he comes down again as the Spirit, in the, the person of the Holy Spirit, to be with his people. Presence of God. And for a lot of the New Testament from that point, One of the key themes then is how the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives should be seen as as a mirror, but also superseding the temple of the Old Testament. So Paul can write this, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. It's got nothing to do with the need to exercise and avoid healthy food, by the way. I don't know how it's been kind of, keep your body as a temple. No, that's not what Paul meant. What he meant was this. Well, like the priests in the temple in the Old Testament... They'd go in and expect to meet God. You can expect to meet God because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that means there are certain ramifications for you in your life and holiness, actually. It's the context of that passage. But there's an experience for each of us as Christians, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Ephesians 2, he broadens it out slightly more. He says, well, the church, what's the church? What's the gathered community of believers? What should they be? Should they be known in their community as those who are helping others? Should they be the ones that have that really kind of loud band on a Sunday morning? What should the church be? Well, he was clear. The church is the temple. That's what Paul, Paul says, Ephesians 2, 21 to 22. In him, in Jesus, the whole body, that's the church, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. There's the temple. Okay, he makes it clearer next bit. And in him, you too, Ephesian church, he's talking to a church here, you too are being built together into a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. As God's people today, as a church today, we, we are to be just like the people of Israel in Solomon's time. With an understanding that what characterizes us most is not a particular set of beliefs or ideas or dogma, but that with us is the living presence of God. It's a message we see all the way through the story. 
And at this point then, as we see probably the clearest visual description in the entire Bible, in some ways, of a near state, a shadow of heaven on earth, we see right at the center of it, as is always the case with heaven on earth, is the living presence of God. And as we, as Christians today, as we seek to draw something of heaven into our experience, that's okay to talk like that. We've been given permission by the word to talk like that. What should we do? How should we do that? We need to prioritize his presence. So we seek to share a bit of heaven with the world around us, to change things. Not just to kind of like putting a band-aid on a broken egg. It's not, it's not going to work. It's not, that's not what we, our mission is. Just kind of patch up here and there. No, we bring something of heaven. How can we bring heaven to this broken earth? We build everything around the presence of the living God. It's how heaven on earth always works. So we kind of tie this up and apply. I've got a Slightly odd confession to make that some of you aren't going to believe. I know. Uh, you, you'll believe the first bit anyway. I, I'm not known as the tidiest person in the whole world. And uh, if you go around my house, you see my study. I've, uh, I've got now two studies. The old study got so messy, I've just moved downstairs to the conservatory. So uh, my wife's very patient. Um, however, while that's true, I do love order. It's maybe because I don't have any in my life. I love it elsewhere as long as I don't have to maintain it. And so in my spiritual life, it's a similar thing. Looking at church and stuff like that, you know, I, I love uh, study and I love reading and thinking and doing. Those things are okay. And the thing about them that's good, I find, is they're very ordered and they're very neat and they're very tidy. You read the Bible. We think about the Bible. We study the Bible. It's very safe. It's very tidy. And actually, I'll confess to you, sometimes I really wish that God just ended it at that. And that's what Christianity was. Let's leave it at that. This whole encounter stuff, let's just sideline that slightly because it's incredibly messy. I've got enough mess in my life to deal with. I don't want to deal with the mess of encounter. Because with encounter and talk of spiritual experience, there is no formula that you can fill in. There's no rules to follow here. How come some people experience God like this? And how come some people experience God like this? I mean, how does that happen? How come some people experience God all the time, it seems? How come other people seem to always go to get prayed for and nothing ever seems to happen and they end up feeling disappointed? And also, just to throw into the pot, it does cause slight rifts within churches. People disagree about this stuff. So one church will say, well, you can experience God and baptism in the Spirit, etc., etc. And others say, no, you can't do that. And then they don't get on and all of that sort of stuff. So I often think that it would be much easier to scrap the whole presence thing and just do lots of thinking, believing, and doing. Be neat, be tidy. If we're to take the big story of the Bible seriously, though, that is exactly what we cannot do. We can't do it. At every juncture in this story, God is a God who goes out of his way to make his presence available to his people. And when his presence is at the heart of things, is when things go best for his people. And when his presence is at the heart of things, is when his people are most of a blessing to the world around them. For us too, you know, as we seek to bring in God's kingdom to our day and age, and doesn't the world need it? Does it God is participate, does it? I mean, it's, it's easy to trump these things up, but every day it's like, oh, wow, there needs to be some sort of change here. We've got this opportunity where we, tell, we can recreate little pockets of heaven in what's increasingly looking like hell. How do we do it? Well, according to this, and the consistent message of the Bible is, 
Well, the first thing to get straight is to make God's presence a first priority and build everything around it. If you're not a Christian here today, I want to make something absolutely clear about what Christianity is. If you think, well, what makes Christianity different to other religions, other faiths? I could say a number of things. I think the key thing, the thing we see in the Bible is this, is that Christianity is not primarily a religion of knowledge and activity. Those things are important and they're in there. No, primarily it's a religion, it's a, it's a faith of encounter with God. It's a living relationship where we really expect to encounter God. I think that sounds weird, that sounds odd. That's the, the faith I see in the Bible. I see tastes of in my own experience. At its best. It's why we worship the way we do. We leave space. We want to meet with God. You guys can worship in a bit. Leave space. We, that's why there's those bits where I encourage people to pray out, to encourage others. Because we want to meet with God. That's why we ha- call our midweek meetings encounter groups. It does what it says on the tin, or it should do anyway. We want to encounter God. We want to put aside time for that. That's why at the end of the meeting, I have a chance to pray for people. If you're ill here, or if you want prayer for anything, if you just wanted more of those things, that, that the touch of heaven, more joy, more peace, that stuff. No, we, we put aside a time, time, not so we can just say, hand on, we've done our prayer, maybe God will do something. No, we want you to meet with God. We believe that stuff happens. That's what we're about. Now, actually, I imagine there'll be a good number here who I've kind of referred to already, who are Christians, and you may have been Christians for quite a while, actually, but still, the whole topic of experiencing God is still something of a hot potato to you. Could be that you've seen the controversy this can cause. Different people have different views, and it causes arguments. Let's leave it. Just don't talk about it. It's a peripheral issue. Maybe even worse. Maybe you've had bad experiences of this stuff. Maybe in settings where people have whipped others up into sort of an emotional kind of frenzy, and then sold it off as God's presence. And you've seen through it, and there's nothing wrong with that. You see, look, this isn't what they said it was. So I'm never going to go anywhere near that again. Don't want to, it was fraud. Listen, in a way, if you feel like that, I'm with you. If I was God, I'd abandon the whole encounter thing. I really would. Get rid of it. It's messy, it's risky, and it's a bit weird. You know, so that's a bit strange. It's not sometimes the thing that sells Christianity. Well, it's a bit odd. So you encounter God. However, listen, you're going to know this one already. I'm not God. <laughs> no surprise. But here's the deal as well. You're not God. And it's not up to us to tell him what he can and can't do. It's up to us as we look into his story to find out what he's like and what he expects of us. And we see that in this story, this is crucial. I've got some questions for you. If you're a Christian here, just some questions to help apply this. Question one. Are you centering your life around the living, experienced presence of God? That's question one. Are you centering your life around the living, experienced presence of God? Nice and vague, so let's get more specific. Question two. In the last month, have you encountered God? Real question. In the last month, have you encountered God? Have you heard his voice? Have you felt his presence, his power, his love? If the answer to that question is, well, this kind of happened, probably have. Actually, probably hasn't. You know, those guys coming from the temple. Did you experience God's own? Not really sure. Well, you probably weren't at the temple because fire came from heaven. Maybe you encountered God in the last month. Third question. When you come to worship God, do you come with an expectation of meeting with God? Or do you think, at best, 
I'll be a bit encouraged today. Real questions. You might think, well, okay, fair enough. Do you just want me to feel bad? I'm not doing so well on these questions. Give me some how-tos. How do I experience God? Well, I'm sure there's lots that could be said on that. As you will notice, I don't have much more time. But I've only had one anyway. (laughs) And it's this. You've got to desire his presence. That's what it is. David, who gave the blueprints for the temple, he modeled this. For David, he made it very clear what his agenda was. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what he writes in the Psalms, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. It's the heart of David. If you ask David, how's your spiritual life doing? You know what? If it was just like, you know, I feel a bit encouraged, he'd be like, no, one thing I ask, I want to see him. I want to meet with him. When he didn't meet with him, Psalm 63, earnestly I seek you. If we, it's about where we settle. It's about where we put the bar for our, our spiritual experience. If we settle on, we come to meetings, we do the stuff, done. We're missing out. We're not chasing after. Now put the bar higher. What are we about? We're about meeting with God. That's what we're about. We chase after him. If you notice in your experience, I'm not meeting with him. It's, nothing, it's not a bad thing. You shouldn't feel bad about that because God meets with his people. Sometimes he withdraws to see how we will push into him. This is what you should do. You haven't met with God for a month. Pray and fast until you do. Don't eat anything for a while. Sounds a bit extreme, but this is what we're about. We're not about doing stuff. We're about the God of the Bible. He's either this God or he's no God. No, we push in. We don't settle for anything less. And you know what? My experience is as you do that, he meets with you. And he meets with us all different. But he's a God who wants relationship with his people so much he would send his son to die for us. And I don't think in that case he's going to hold back as we seek for him. As we draw near to him, he draws near to us. In this church, at Church Central, we want to be a church like this. We want to be full of individuals' lives like this. And we want to be a church that brings heaven on earth to those around us. What we see from Solomon is if we can learn anything from his kingdom, is we've got to put God's presence at the center of everything we do. So you guys, it's kind of a nice way around here, and that you get a chance just to spend some time in, we use that phrase, in God's presence. You know, actually, you could just spend some time standing in a room singing. That could be what you're doing for next hour. I'd encourage you not to do that. And to press in to God. To say to him, God, look, I want to meet with you today. You never know. He might say to you, well, actually, would you like to do this? God doesn't figure that. And he goes, do this. God, do it. Push in. And that might be different for you. But I'll, I'll leave you to that. And hopefully you have some fun. <laughs>